Uh, I've been um, using the book of Philippians particularly as um, my uh, go-to book for sermons when I'm asked to preach somewhere. And I've used that down here, I think, a time or two. But this morning, uh, we're coming to chapter 2 of Philippians in my studies. And uh, so if you would turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, that's where our scripture scripture reading will come from. And our focus uh, is on the events in that chapter. Uh, Philippians chapter 2 has in it a section that is uh, very rich in its meaning concerning uh, the humiliation and exaltation of Christ. And um, while we'll be touching on some other things, I want to focus particularly on those points. Uh, Those of you that are uh, using outlines, uh, you'll notice that point two is much longer than all of the others. So that's where we'll be looking at that in a little more detail. Uh, I'm going to actually begin my reading back in verse 27 of chapter 1 because it kind of flows on into chapter 2, but our study then will be in chapter 2 particularly. So please follow along as I read Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, down through chapter 2 and verse 16. This is the very word of God. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So, If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort in love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, 
so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. May God add his blessing to the reading of his own very word. The... um, particular subject that Paul is addressing throughout this second chapter is the subject of humility. Um, I didn't choose that because I thought you folks especially needed that, uh, but this is the next section that I was working on, and I, I'm really uh, hoping to see the emphasis in the second point that we'll be getting to in just a few moments. But why, why was Paul... Uh, concerned about humility, particularly in this letter. Uh, those of you that have um, studied Philippians in any detail and, and are familiar with it uh, may remember that, that Paul seems to make uh, allusions at least two or three times throughout the book that everything was not going quite as smoothly as it should be in Philippi. Uh, Philippi was one of Paul's favorite mission activities. He He really loved the people there in Philippi, and they obviously loved him. Uh, They provided for some of his support, as you see later on in in the book, and particularly the fourth chapter. But Paul is also concerned that there's there's apparently some form of disunity that uh, has reared its head on occasion there. In particular, he mentions two ladies that are not getting along uh, later on in, in the book, and and he encourages a trusted fellow servant uh, who's unnamed to us, a true yoke fellow, he's called in some of our translations, and he entrusts that person to work with with these ladies, especially to bring about the unity that should be there. But uh, as we we look through chapter 2, I think we're seeing that, that he's saying all of you need to stress and work on getting along well together and uh, showing humility, and he uses then Christ as an example of that. And so I've I've chosen as the the title and the the main theme of this, have this mind among yourselves. Well, what is that mind that we're talking about here? It's the mind of Christ, he says. And so he wants us to focus on that particularly. Uh, Pride, after all, is, is one of the besetting sins that uh, all of us face at one time or another, I'm sure. 
Satan is, is very subtle. He's very beguiling. He tempts us to think more highly of ourselves than, than we really should. And if he can raise a spirit of pride in the heart of a believer, then a sense of the need to trust God in all things is weakened. It's a sin that we all need to guard ourselves against. And, and uh, Paul is, is emphasizing to these Christians in the church there in Philippi that uh, the, the solution to that is learning humility and practicing humility in the way and in the manner in which Christ himself practiced humility. So humility is certainly a, a, a virtue that we as Christians, by God's grace, need to cultivate. And let's, uh, let's look at the chapter. Uh, there's an outline uh, on the back of your bulletin, uh, some blanks in it that you might need to fill in. Um, and uh, I'll give you some more things as we go along in it as well. But the first thing I want us to think about is the plea that Paul makes for humility. He's pleading with them that they would, would give themselves to this matter of humility, that they would, that they would know what it is uh, and, and learn how to, to see it developed and grow and mature in their lives. Uh, this is alluded to back in verse 27 of chapter 1 that I went back to read. Remember there, uh, Paul said to them, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Unity. He's pleading and praying that they would have that unity. Here in chapter 2, verses four, uh, 3 and 4, uh, he's saying, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. A call, a plea for humility. Uh, I think if each of us could simply follow these scriptural directives, verse 27 and chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, there would be far less conflict among individuals. But the natural man is not generally inclined in that way. And uh, it's only by God's grace that we're able to overcome that and, and uh, then seek not our own way, but rather let our lives, our manner of lives, be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Um, too often, instead of that, we, we act according to those selfish ambitions that he warns against. And um, the, the description that he gives there is actually just a definition of what pride is. And so Paul is urging them, and through the Scripture, the Holy Spirit is urging us, then, that we would be acting, behaving in humility, counting others more significant than ourselves, uh, looking not to our own interests, but also to the interests of others as well. Uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, I think, may have had this verse in mind when they addressed the duties of the Fifth Commandment. 
You remember the fifth commandment uh, is um, uh, honor your your parents, uh, your father and your mother. That sort. Of, in the shorter catechism, uh, the Westminster Assembly, the divines there, uh, put this explanation as part of the duties of the fifth commandment. The fifth commandment requireth the preserving the honor and performing the duties belonging to everyone in their several places and relationships. Interesting when they go on then and say, not to your parents, but rather as superiors, as inferiors, or as equals. doesn't matter whether the person that you're dealing with is, is somehow superior to you in, in position or authority or whatever it may be, or whether you're superior to that person and they're lower than you, or, or whether you're equals, as the Westminster Assembly put it, the fifth commandment addresses our behavior up, our behavior down, and our behavior this way as well, that we might honor one another. And um, we're engaged in the same interest. Uh, we're wanting to see the glory of God in all of these things. So the Christian is called to look to or to consider the other person's position and the other person's needs, whether they're higher than us, lower than us, or equal to us in every way. And so um, that's what Paul's talking about. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you look not, look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Um, I, I don't think Paul is indicating here that a believer cannot seek to excel and do his best. Uh, it's, that's, that's a different uh, category rather than uh, looking down on someone else and, and that sort of thing. Uh, but there are many, many warnings against pride. Uh, just consider a couple. First uh, John chapter 2 and verse 16, uh, John says, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. So the plea for humility that Paul is giving us, particularly in these first verses, uh, is that our manner of life be worthy of the gospel, that we strive side by side along with others, that we guard against selfish ambition, that we strive for humility, that we don't count ourselves as more important than others and look out after the needs of others. Well, <laughs> that's the plea. How do we get about doing it? Uh, it's, it's difficult. It's, it's hard to do that sort of thing. And so Paul goes into what I think is probably one of the most beautiful descriptions of the person and, and work and nature of Christ that you'll find anywhere in the scripture. Uh, Philippians chapter 2 and verses 5 through 11. And I want us to focus in, in good detail on that particularly uh, as, we, as we think about this. Let, let me just read it for us again. Have this mind among yourselves. Which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, 
being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The pattern that we have for humility is found in Jesus Christ. That's, that's the pattern that we have. We need to have the mind of Christ. And Paul says that mind of Christ is in fact ours because of our relationship with Christ. He's talking about the union that we have with Christ, although he doesn't develop that in detail here. But this means then that we as Christians can at least have a form or a portion of the kind of humility that he's saying is demonstrated for us, for our purpose in the person of Christ. Uh, there are difficulties in this passage, and I'm going to, to try and touch on a couple of them at least and, and help us uh, look at that a little bit more. But uh, probably the, the major one that we need to be concerned about is found there in, in verse 7 where it says he emptied himself. And we'll touch on that in a little more detail in just a few moments. But uh, in order for us to grasp the essence of Christ's humility as it's laid out for us in this passage, we need to understand, first of all, that Jesus is fully and completely God. He is divine. Uh, his divine nature was brought into union with a, a physical human body by the conception of the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary. And uh, one of the dangers of verse 7 and the translation, he emptied himself, is that many have tried to use that to indicate that Jesus is less than God. He, he got rid of some of the the attributes or the nature of God in some way. And so they, they're looking at, at Jesus in a, in a human form without the divine nature being fully there. And so Paul, Paul is very clear in laying the foundation for us that he is in the, the same form of God. That means the same essence. It, there, there's, no, there's no difference between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit as far as their nature and essence is concerned. And Jesus taking on the form of man did not weaken or change the fact that he was in form, in essence, the same as God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. His equality is full and complete. And there, there's no difference in any any sense in any way. He did not consider that a hindrance to his teaching or to his work and ministry uh, as our Savior to take on the form of man. And in the form, that, that's the same word used again, by the way. Uh, it's the same essence of man. 
He was truly human. Uh, he got tired and went to sleep. He got hungry and ate. Uh, he, he had the, the form and nature of a human being as well. Two persons, in, 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 two natures rather, in one person. Beyond our comprehension, really, beyond our ability to fully understand and, and fully explain. So the point that Paul is making here particularly is that Jesus is in every sense equal with both God and the nature of God and man and the nature of man. One essence but two natures in this way. One person. Fully God. Fully man. But the difficult question then is what does this mean when it says he emptied himself? What did he get rid of? How did he empty himself? I, I read one commentator that said, well, uh, emptying himself meant that he added humanity. Now, there's a, a thing to wrap your mind around for a little bit. But um, what, what we're seeing here is the nature of Christ's humiliation. And um, I, I've got that in your outline there, but I didn't fill out the, uh, the end of the form. Uh, the true nature of Christ's humiliation, he did not. What, what did he not? He did not count equality with God something that, that he had to hang on to. Uh, he was equal with God, but, but he didn't give it up. He said that's not, that's not necessary to, uh, uh, to deprive myself of that in order to do the, the work of a Savior. He emptied himself. Well, what does that mean? Um, actually, the word emptied himself is a very literal translation. If you're using the ESV, you'll, you'll see it that way. He emptied himself. And that's, that's what you'll find in some other translations as well. But um, uh, it's not the only translation. The New King James, for example, has a slightly different translation. The New American Standard, uh, although it uses the word he emptied himself, it has a, a side reading that uh, it goes this way, that he, um, I can't find it here, he laid aside his privileges, laid aside the privileges. Uh, something that helped me very much was reading a sermon by Professor John Murray of Westminster Seminary when he preached on this subject. And so let me give you a, a fairly lengthy quote from John Murray on this sermon. And I'm, I'm quoting on all of this now. John Murray said, When we read that he made himself of no reputation, a liter literal rendering would be he emptied himself. Translation he's leaning towards is either New King James or, or one similar to that. He made himself of no reputation. He goes on to say, but here I want to be very emphatic and very denunciatory. <laughs> there is not one whit of good reason for a literal translation of this particular point. Okay? Usage elsewhere in the context here require the figurative rending, rendering, which is well given in our reading, he made himself of no reputation. Or, an alternative, he made no account of himself. 
versions that have adopted a literal translation have imposed upon English readers a rendering that has ignored the demands of good translation and interpretation and have introduced a question into the minds of English readers that neither the content nor the particular passage concerned warrant or require. The thought is simply that Christ Jesus did not make his own self the self make his own self the all-absorbing and exclusive object of interest, concern, and attention, but became absorbed in concern for others. He made no account of himself. And if you know the Greek, you see that the emphasis falls upon himself, made no account of himself. That, of course, is the leading lesson of the whole passage. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. He had a lot more of uh, very good things to say concerning this, uh, but that's the end of the quote that I'm, I'm giving you for that. Uh, so, there's still kind of this question, well then, what did, what did he give up, or what, what was not there? I, Murray is, is setting before us, I think, the understanding that, that he didn't give up anything of his divine nature, uh, or of his divine person, but it, it was not something that he felt compelled to, to grasp onto and, and make sure everybody knows that this is who I am and, and that sort of thing. I think part of the answer helps us as we uh, consider the idea that part of, his, uh, part of his glory was veiled. You remember the transfiguration there on the mountain? What happened on the mountain? Peter and James, John... Jesus, he was glorified. The, the, the majesty of his glory came more visible to them. And that, that, I think, is what had been veiled. And we get more of this if you go to John 17 uh, in the high priestly prayer of Jesus. In that prayer, uh, at verses 4 and 5, Jesus says to this, I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work you gave me to do. He's praying to the Father. He goes on to say, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I think the, the suggestion is, is certainly clear there that his glory was veiled. It was, it was not as, as visible as... It is in his real person and nature. And I think that's, that's probably what, what is being referred to then in the idea of Christ's of humiliation and laying aside the veiling of the glory that was his. But notice Paul immediately goes on to talk about not only his humiliation, but also his exaltation. Uh, I didn't fill in the rest of those blanks for you. Let me go ahead and do that. Uh, we talked about emptying himself and, and a better translation of the, that he made himself of, of no account or he didn't, didn't, uh, didn't hold on to that glory in that way. But then he took on the form 
of a servant or of a, uh, a bond servant. Uh, that word is sometimes translated slave. Uh, it's it's uh, in this sense more the idea of a servant or bond servant. Uh, he was born in the form in the same likeness of men and most importantly perhaps on this he became obedient even to the point of death even death on the cross all of those things are involved in the humiliation of Christ which was demonstrating his his humbleness his humility but the nature of his exaltation just very briefly God highly exalted him God bestowed upon him the name and that's not just the name Jesus, by the way. I think some of our um, Christian brethren uh, almost treat the name Jesus like a, uh, a mantra or something or a magical term that uh, say the name of Jesus and you've got it. Uh, there's more to it than that, as I'll say in just a moment. Because he bestowed upon him this name, and it's a name that's, that's above all. It's the name of Jesus, but... It's the name that causes people, every knee, to bow. Now, in, in our present condition, unbelievers don't bow, but they will bow at the judgment. Every knee will bow to him. And um, they will also confess that Jesus is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. Um, they may not do it now, but they will acknowledge that Eventually, it will become perfectly clear to them in this. So that he is, he is honored, he's magnified, he's, he's before all. And, and, and the thing that we're getting at particularly here is that um, not only did he humble himself, but having humbled himself, God highly exalted him uh, above the heavens. And um, the real... I think meaning of the name comes to us in the latter part of verse 11. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is King. They'll acknowledge that he is, his full name is the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, it's not just Jesus Christ, but the Lord Jesus Christ in every way. And so um, <clears throat> Christ is our, our supreme example of humility. And uh, he humbled himself in order that others might be exalted. He took upon himself the form of a servant so that others might become sons of God. And, and we can't even begin to fully comprehend what the humiliation of Christ was really like. But uh, this pattern is a pattern that, that we see outlined for us here and we're to, uh, uh, to follow that part pattern. We have to be on our guard against self-righteousness, but we also need to be striving after this, this mind of Christ, the mind of, of a humble servant in this way. Uh, I think a good description is that we need to be like the, the praying tax collector that Jesus told about and not the proud Pharisee there in Luke chapter 18. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. 
two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give thanks to all that I, uh, I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And that's a contrast between pride and humility, certainly. Well, how can we do that? That's the pattern. Let's think for just a few minutes about the power. How do we get about being able to do that? Paul alludes to this, I think, in verses 12 and 13 when he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Um, there's a whole sermon on that. We're not going to do it this morning. Uh, as I said earlier, I wanted to emphasize particularly the humiliation and exaltation of Christ. But the, the power for humility is found there in verses 12 and 13. Work out your own salvation. It's a phrase that's caused a lot of difficulty and a lot of concern by people. What? You mean I, I can... I can become a Christian by what I do. I work it out. Not the, that's not what it says at all if you look at it carefully and listen to it in this way. We don't earn our own salvation by living a life of humility. What the text here is describing is a whole consideration for itself and uh, just touching on a couple of points uh, this morning. Salvation, the word salvation can be used in a number of different ways throughout the scripture uh, and throughout our English language. Uh, when you save someone, it, it may mean simply rescuing them from uh, danger, from a fire or from drowning or whatever. You, you can save them in that way. Uh, it can refer in the scripture to gospel salvation, our salvation from sin, and we need to remember that Scripture is abundantly clear and plain that that is the work of God. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 is probably the best reference to go to regarding that, where we're told that, um, that we are saved by grace through faith, not in any way anything of ourselves, because it's a gift of God. It's not of works. There's no boasting that we can do about that. So there's another way that the word salvation is used throughout Scripture. And I think that's the way that it's being used in this particular passage. And that is the work of growth and grace, sanctification. Our sanctification is also described as salvation in various places. And if we understand that, that Paul is talking about our sanctification here, then we are involved in doing the good works of our sanctification. Not that they earn us merit or earn us favor with God or anything in that way, but rather as believers, 
a part of our growth in grace is doing the works that God has commanded us to do. But there's another very important qualification in this passage. I want you to notice it and memorize it and keep it always up here in your mind. Because in verse 13, Paul goes on to say, because it is God that works in you both to will and to do of this salvation that we're talking about here. It's God who has worked in, in you, giving you both the will, the desire to do it, and the ability to do it. It's all of his good pleasure. We don't do it on our own. It's because of God's work in us. He's the only one who gives you the will to do it. He's the only one who enables you to do it. He's the only one that does it because it's of his good pleasure to do it. And as I said, there's a, there's a whole other sermon in that, but we're not going to do that this morning. I want us to just close very briefly with the, the fourth point, and that is the product of humility. Uh, what's the consequence? What's the result? What's, what, what's the end result of all of this? Verses 14 through 16, Paul says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run or run in vain or labor in vain. Paul's saying, I want to be able to look at your results and see the, the evidence of humility being worked out in your lives in such a way that, that I can be proud in the proper sense of that word, that, that what I was preaching to you, you took in heed, and God gave you grace and the ability to will and desire and the ability to do all of these things, and, and I'll see the evidence. And that's the product of our humility, seeing the evidence in the lives of believers in this way. Well, again, there's much more that could be said in all of that, but um, I wanted us to particularly see the call that Paul, or yes, the call that Paul is giving to us to see humility and to work out humility in our lives and, and continue in all of that. Let's look to God in prayer. Our Father in heaven, <clears throat> we do thank you for your many blessings to us. We thank you for this word that um, you have given us through the ministry and life of Paul and his teaching and encouraging those believers there in Philippi. Father, we pray that you would enable us indeed to have the mind of Christ in our own lives. We ask all of these things in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.